Thank you very much, Edward, and thank you for hosting me. And I'm very uh, pleased uh, to be able to be here. I express my thanks to the Middle Eastern Forum, too. Uh, um, this is a, a challenging subject, loyalty and, and Islam. The problem of, of citizenship in Western nations for Muslims is a deep and uh, persistent one. It's a, it's a sensitive subject, obviously. At various times, it's been a xenophobic claim made, made against particular minorities that they are disloyal to the nation, and it incites prejudice and uh, uh, causes an environment of disadvantage for those minorities. So it's a sensitive subject, but still, in the case of Islam, a very important one. There have been any number of incidents in democratic states which show that, at least for some Muslims, the issue of loyalty is a serious one. There was the stabbing and attempted murder of a former British government minister, Stephen Timms, by Roshanara Chowdhury. Uh, she, a young woman, she refused to attend court sessions during uh, the case against her because she said she did not recognise the authority of the British court. Another case here in the US, Major Naid al-Hassan, he, he had advised his superiors, giving the arguments clearly, that uh, he would have a, a problem being posted to Iraq or Afghanistan and when he was posted, he did exactly what he had explained would happen in that situation. He launched an attack on his fellow soldiers in the U.S. Army. And there have been many uh, reports in the media that we see of conflict between uh, Muslim minorities and their surrounding societies in Western nations. It's not difficult to find uh, cases where issues of loyalty, identity, exclusion, inclusion have been very much on the agenda. <coughs> It's interesting to note that this is not a new problem. The issue of uh, identity and inclusion of Muslims under non-Muslim governance was an important issue centuries ago. It was a key issue for the British Empire, for example. Queen Victoria found that she was ruling uh, around uh, a third of the Muslims in the world. And it became an issue for the British government how to manage that and uh, whether the Muslims under the Queen uh, of England could be loyal citizens of the British Empire. Uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, an important aspect of this question of identity and loyalty was resolved quite early. Uh, a key passage is in the book of Jeremiah, uh, where there's a letter that's written to the Jews in exile which encourages them to settle down, uh, have children, do well, prosper, seek the well-being of the city in which you live. From Jeremiah chapter 29. Seek the prosperity and peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So be a blessing to the state. And the story of the book of Daniel uh, encourages the Jews and explores the questions of how to be loyal to a, a, a non-believing ruler. Uh, when you're in a situation of, uh, of being a religious minority. And the Christian writers in the New Testament continue that theme. So you have both Peter and Paul arguing that uh, Christians should be subject to the pagan authorities. In contrast, Islam has always had great difficulty separating political from religious identity. And uh, in classical Arabic, there's not even the language uh, to render this distinction, the distinction between the secular and the ecclesiastical. Uh, which is absolutely fundamental in Christian thought from the very beginning. It goes back uh, to the Greek categories of ecclesia, the, the church, uh, taken over from the Hebrew kahal, and also the, the world, aeon, uh, the Latin secularum. So uh, the distinction goes right back to the roots of, of the faith between ecclesiastical and secular, the world and the church. 
the Islam take on politics and religion goes back to Muhammad. He, he combined in himself the offices of um, chief justice of the state, um, head of the army, king and high priest. So he combined all power in himself. And one of the key principles of Islamic faith is that Muhammad's example is the best example. So what he did, others should follow. And this establishes the principle that there's no distinction between religion and politics in a very deep and profound way in the Islamic consciousness. Um, There's also an issue issue in classical Islamic jurisprudence around uh, the situation of a Muslim living under non-Muslim rule. The classical view of Islamic law is that the world is divided into the house of Islam, the Dar al-Islam, and the Dar al-Had, the house of war. And uh, a Muslim is not allowed to live in the lands of the infidel, in classical Islam. Uh, They had to uh, come and live in the house of Islam. It's It's a religious duty for them to do so. And so there's a consensus in Islamic law that if a Muslim happens to find themselves outside the domain of Islamic law and Islamic uh, polity, they should migrate uh, and live under uh, Islamic rule. Muhammad said after he established political Islam in Medina that every Muslim should go to live where Islam is dominant. He said, I am not responsible for any Muslim who lives amongst the polytheists. And they said, why, Apostle of Allah? And he said, who joins the polytheists and lives with them, he is like them. He said, migration will not end until repentance ends and repentance will not end until the sun rises in the West. So until the end of time, Muslims have a duty to migrate to where Islam is dominant. Surah 4 of the Quran says that the angels will interrogate Muslims who lived among the disbelievers and ask them why they didn't migrate. And it is said that a great reward will await every Muslim who migrates to a Muslim land. His recompense is reserved with Allah, a great blessing. Now this perspective which, as I said, is the classical jurisprudence, the classical view, well supported. It was reflected in a statement by Craig Baxham, who was a former U.S. Army cryptologist recently arrested on giving support to a terrorist organisation. He said he believed he had a duty to migrate to Muslim territory. Unfortunately for him, there were only two places that he thought fitted that. One was Somalia and the other was Afghanistan. So he was sort of on his way to Somalia. But... uh, Um, There are also quite a lot of traditions, uh, important traditions of Muhammad, that it's wrong for Muslims to copy or emulate the ways of non-Muslims. Now, all this created an issue for the British, as I explained. When they conquered a large part of the Muslim world, infidel sovereignty over Muslims could be a trigger for them to fight to wage jihad against the British. And for that reason, the British were theologically quite creative, and they managed to get from the Ottoman Caliphate Uh, and also from the Meccan heads of the Hanafi and Shafi'i schools of law, these are the two main schools of law, uh, Sunni law, that applied in India, they got uh, rulings or fatwas declaring that the British Empire was Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam. So um, these were obtained in 1857 and renewed in 1864, and the Meccan fatwas were renewed in 1914. This was a message to all Muslims living in British India that because the Muslims were living in an Islamic state, they had no duty to rebel or to migrate or otherwise cause problems for the Queen. So it's not a new problem. And many uh, religious leaders in India agreed with the fatwas and supported them. And they urged Indian Muslims to settle down and contribute to building British India and to support it. 
And they used their support later as a bargaining chip when uh, a colonial period ended to install aspects of Sharia law into Indian law. But not all agreed with this strategy. Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, he was an ideological precursor to the modern-day radical movements. He took the view that it was better to bide your time and prepare for another day when there'd be an opportunity to fight against the British or whoever. Now, this issue of identity and loyalty is coming back to us today, in, and not in the context of conquests of Muslim countries, but due to the huge flows of immigration of Muslims into the West, into nations like the USA, Britain, Norway, France, even Australia. And uh, how then could, should Muslims understand their presence living in the land of the infidels? It's a significant theological, social identity question. In the early 1980s, Taha Jabil al-Alwani, who helped to found the International Institute of Islamic Thought in Washington and founded the Fiqh Council of North America, wrote a letter with 28 questions to the International Fiqh Academy, which had been newly formed by the Organization for the Islamic Conference. Uh, this academy, the Fiqh Academy, is set up as a supreme body of jurisprudence in the world by the OIC, which is sort of like a United Nations of Islam. It began operations in 1985, and it's held 19 sessions since 1985. It's constituted by about 40 scholars at present, and they're all grand muftis or recognised absolute supreme authorities of Islamic law in their own nations. So it would be like convening a gathering of the Supreme Court judges of English-speaking nations and getting them together to talk about issues of law for the world, for the whole world. So it's an ambitious project, the work of the International Fiqh Academy. And they are certainly can be described as mainstream Islam. It'd be very bizarre to say that they weren't. Now, um, these legal minds normally gather in Saudi Arabia and... Uh, all their deliberations and most of their publications are in Arabic, and they mainly concern themselves with modern issues such as Sharia finance and uh, uh, medical science implications for, for living as a Muslim in the modern world, but they've also looked at other issues such as human rights. I've, I've written some articles on three fatwas they did on, on human rights a few years back. Now, Al-Alwani's 28 questions came at the very beginning of the activities of the academy, and they were all about living as a Muslim in the West, and specifically referring to the USA and Europe, and some of the questions were very specific. For example, is it permissible, if the workplace requires it, for a Muslim woman to shake the hand of a non-Muslim man? The answer is no, it's not. Can a Muslim woman pluck her eyebrows? No, she can't. Um, if a Muslim woman marries a non-Muslim hoping to convert him to Islam, is that legitimate? No, it's not. Can a Muslim eat meat slaughtered by Christians or Jews? Yes, that's permitted, said the International Fiqh Academy. So, other interesting questions. The first question, uh, which interestingly the Academy never answered publicly, um, was this. Uh, it's quite a long question, but the question is basically, is a Muslim allowed to be a citizen? In a, in, a Muslim country, in a non-Muslim country. What is the ruling in regards to the matter of naturalization in a foreign nationality, whether American nationality or any of the other European nationalities? And then it says, take into account that many of those that are seeking to be naturalized have fled countries in which they've been more persecuted for their faith 
than they would be in, in the US. So they've, they've fled Egypt because they were perhaps a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, it's not safe there. They come to America. They have much more freedom to live as a Muslim there. Is it permissible for them to become um, an American citizen when their rights, their religious rights, are more protected in the new country? It's an interesting question. Why is that even a question? That is it, is it permissible to be a citizen? And why was it that the Fiqh Academy never answered it? They answered all the other questions. Why did they come out and say, yes or no, you can't be a citizen? Um, the tradition, of course, was, is, would be the answer is no. Muslims are not allowed to live outside the Dar al-Islam. Now, part of the issue is the concept of the Ummah, or, or the Muslim nationality, Muslim nation. The understanding is that religion and politics are intertwined, so your religious identity is a political identity. And there's a sense of conflicted allegiance. If you live outside an Islamic state, you have your feet in, in both camps. You're, you're a member of the Muslim nationality, but also of this other nationality. And it's very interesting the language that scholars use about this situation. It, some of them speak about um, melting or being diluted in the lands of the infidel. It's a bit like the idea if you take the ember, the coal out of the Islamic fire, and put it to one side, it will go cold and, and, and die. And there are quite a number of hadiths that um, warn against the danger of lose, using your, losing your identity. Uh, one of the traditions or hadiths of Muhammad says that um, it was wrong to look like uh, non-Muslims. Uh, you shouldn't dress like them. Um, for those who look alike are of the same, he said. So if you look like them, you are of them. Um, and traditions are used by scholars to say that they were used, for example, to insist that non-Muslims should dress differently under Islamic law, to keep them distinct, even in an Islamic country. So the coloured patch of cloth uh, worn by Jews was an idea developed in medieval Islam, so they could be instantly distinguished. But the reverse also applies. If a Muslim lives in, an, in a, in a non-Islamic state, how can they maintain their distinctness and not become like the infidels? There was a concession in traditional Islamic law that a trader or a traveller could stay up to four nights in the lands of the infidel, but then they had to come back again. Um, and there was also that principle that I mentioned that um, once uh, Medina had been established as a political space for Islam, uh, Muslims had a duty to migrate to, to the Islamic State. Now... Um, there's also a principle repeated many times in the Quran that sovereignty only comes from God, only comes from Allah. So Muslims should only submit to authorities who rule by the laws of Allah. There is no concept of a, a non-religious authority that's legitimate. So Sharia law um, has to be applied. And there is a view that in order to follow Sharia law, uh, you need to be in an Islamic state. You need the power of the state to set up an environment in which Muslims are truly free to practice their religion. I'm, I'm presenting the, the traditional uh, classical view to you. Um, so, for example, Sheikh Muhammad al-Mukhtar al-Salami, al the Mufti of Tunisia, in uh, his reflections on this issue, he pointed out that in a non-Islamic state, a father has no power to prohibit his son from doing things which are unlawful in Islam. So, uh, because if the state doesn't make those acts illegal, such as drinking alcohol, the father can't compel the son to follow Islam properly. So that's a great disadvantage for a Muslim father to live in a country where they can't compel their child to follow the law of Islam. The state would normally back them up. 
In a non-Muslim state, the police will not give a Muslim the power to compel his son to follow Islam. So he said that's a huge disadvantage for Muslims living in a non-Islamic environment. Also, he pointed out that in a, in a non-Islamic society, the country, the nation will not allocate um, property to your heirs according to Islamic law. And your marriage or divorce um, should be settled according to Islamic principles. But if the state has other laws, your Islamic way of life won't be supported by the state. If your state is not an Islamic state, you don't enjoy the full rights of living as a Muslim. So there are other verses too that speak about the destiny of Islam to rule and to command what's right and forbid what's wrong and the great difficulty of fulfilling that mandate in a non-Islamic environment is very clear. There's also a verse that says that believers should not take non-believers for their guardians or protectors. It's wrong for Muslims to be in a position where they're vulnerable and dependent on non-Muslims to protect them and to look after them, Surah 3. 28. So there's lots of issues, theological issues in the Quran and in the classic jurisprudence that make it hard for Muslims living in a non-Muslim environment. However, there's a principle in Islam. Islam is a very pragmatic uh, faith. So there's a principle that says that necessity permits what's forbidden. So it's forbidden to eat food which is not halal, but if there's no other food, you can eat it. It's compulsory to pray five times a day at specified times, but if you can't for some reason you're travelling, you can catch up later. And so there are concessions available which would allow a Muslim to adopt the sovereignty or the citizenship of a non-Muslim state as a matter of necessity. These are concessions. Um, all the scholars who commented on these fatwas, so the, 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 the International Fiqh Academy didn't come out with a, with a summary opinion. But they did, for a period, publish a whole series of rulings by leading scholars, and I managed to download them. Again, they were in Arabic from, from their website, and they, they disappeared soon after. But all of the scholars agreed that there were certain circumstances under which it was permissible for a Muslim to be a citizen. Um, for example, Muhammad Taki Usmani, who for 20 years was uh, Chief Justice on the Pakistan Supreme Court, is now the Vice President of the Islamic Fiqh Academy, one of the leading international experts on Sharia finance. He gave a very detailed answer and he said, yes, if you're being persecuted for your religious practice in, an, in a Muslim country, you're allowed to flee to France or America or somewhere else uh, where you're permitted to practice your religion without persecution. Another concession that the scholars make is that if you're there to practice dawah, that is to promote, to proselytize and promote Islam, that also lets you off the hook of living in a non-Islamic state. Um, extremely interesting and diverse rulings from different scholars that the Fiqh Academy put out. Um, it's important to emphasise, I said it before, but I'll say it again, the scholars that I'm speaking about are the, are the supreme authorities. They're very well-regarded, well-respected people. These are the, the muftis, the most senior authorities in their nations, selected and gathered together for that reason. A very common theme of these rulings is the importance of protecting the Islamic identity. They're very concerned about protecting against the dangers of assimilation and integration. They all reject that possibility. For example, Muhammad Taqi Usmani said, if naturalization in, foreign, in the foreign nation is for the purpose of rendering the new nation mighty or to be proud of it or to prefer it to the Muslim identity, the Muslim nation, this is absolutely haram or forbidden. So if you become an American in order to make America great, that is an unforgivable sin. Now, 
Sheikh Asalami, the Mufti of Tunisia, he said all the essentials of naturalization that we've laid out, and he explains what's expected of, of a loyal citizen, constitute an absolute rejection of the rules of Islam, and they reflect a categorical intention to deny Islam. This amounts to preferring the sovereignty of others over Allah's rule. So he's saying that when you become a citizen, you tend to have to abide by the laws of the land, submit to them and honor them, but this amounts to a rejection of Islam's laws. So a Muslim has rejected Islam, they've become an apostate, he said, if they did that. So there are quite, there's quite strong positions that run through all of these fatwas, even though they all say, yes, it is possible under certain circumstances to become a citizen, but not if you're going to identify with your nation and serve it and honour it and uh, regard it as a, as a goal to, to make, it a great, make it a great nation. Now, these rulings were gathered together in 1985, and they were, they were produced by very supreme authorities in the Islamic world. So they're, they're, they're quite well known. This is, these, these are not new ideas that I'm presenting to you. And Muslims in the West have had 25 years in the meantime to think about this. And they're still working on it. It's not a closed question. But you can imagine, given what I've described, that loyal, pious Muslims would find themselves in a theological pickle in the West over these issues if they were to take these principles seriously. One strategy to solve the problem is the one that uh, Al-Alwani came to himself. He declared some years ago that America was Dar al-Islam. It's an Islamic state. And the advantage of that, that you don't have to migrate because you're already living in an Islamic state. This is the British solution in India. And he said that's because if you're a radical Muslim in America or a conservative Muslim, you, you, you're more able to follow your religion than you would be in, say, Egypt. So that's one solution. It brings its problems as well. Um, and some have emphasized in recent years there's been some theological innovation and some theologians have sought to emphasize the brotherhood of humanity, the equality amongst human beings apart from religious identity and have looked to verses in the Quran that emphasize creation and the common status of being a human being. So that's a new innovative direction which has certainly not won the, won the day in Islamic law. There's finally one more issue that I want to touch on briefly and that is... Um, the concept of taqiyya or deception. Uh, there are a number of circumstances in Islamic law where it's permitted to, to deceive. Uh, um, defending yourself in a court case uh, or when you're trying to reconcile people and marital relations. But there's a specific um, verse, Surah 3, chapter 3, verse 28 in the Quran that says that you're not supposed to take non-believers as your protectors except by way of precaution that you can guard yourselves from them. And all the commentators agree that what this means is that when Muslims are in a minority or vulnerable position, they're allowed to take non-Muslims as friends or protectors, but not with sincerity. And the, the commentaries are really quite shocking for us as Westerners to read. Uh, um, Asam Akshari, he said, it's permitted to take non-Muslims as guardians or friends if you fear them. But this is the contrary of the real relationship. He said, the heart is comforted by enmity and hatefulness. This is really quite disturbing. And uh, Ibn Kathir said, um, he, he quoted from, uh, a, a, com from a, 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 a tradition and said, we smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. And he said, this deception is allowed until the day of resurrection. Maududi made similar comments so I talk about that more in my, in my book, The Third Choice. So that's another theological complexity of how do you juggle uh, classical demands of Islam with living in, in the West. Now, 
these raise very difficult issues. <laughs> Muslim theologians have a lot of work to do. It's new work. It's not something after 1,400 years that Muslims have really spent a lot of time working on. How do you live as a non-Muslim, in, as a Muslim in a non-Islamic environment? Um, also, you could notice another thing about this, that if there's pressure, if you're a Muslim moving in America and there's a theological pressure that your, your presence there is justified religiously if you meet certain concessions, there's some pressure to make sure you meet those concessions. So if, 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 if your presence there is justified by dawah, by proclamation, then you surely better get involved in, in dawah and sharing your faith because that would justify your presence in the country. Or if your presence is justified because you'd be persecuted back home, you better have complete freedom to get everything you need for Sharia law in America because if you're persecuted here, there's no justification for being here at all. You may as well be back in the Islamic country. So this raises complex uh, uh, issues for, for Muslims. These are important issues for public policy. If leaders are unfamiliar with these aspects of Islamic law, and in fact the way they've been discussed by Muslims over the last 25 to 30 years, they will come up with very bad policy decisions. Uh, you don't want to validate the, the overall worldview. Uh, we want to encourage Muslims to settle down and become full participants, but without legitimising uh, this particular theological worldview I've described. And handing over concessions, as Lord Phillips, the uh, Chief Justice in Britain, did when he said that Britain should embrace Sharia law, is also not a good idea. We don't really want to become second-class dhimmis, uh, non-Muslims, living in an increasingly Shariaized society. That can't be the, the solution of these problems as well. One of the difficulties with the kinds of issues I've raised is that we're frightened, of course, of becoming xenophobes, of, of, of falling into hatred and animosity and hostility. Um, but that shouldn't prevent us from dealing with the reality of the theological challenges that Muslims are facing. Another thing also has to be uh, emphasised is the diversity of beliefs and practices among Muslims. They have different views on these issues. So Al-Awali's solution of declaring America an Islamic state is a reflection of that. We live in a very theologically dynamic period, I think, for Muslims, at least in the West, and we can be sure that the Muslims are working hard on this issue. It's a fundamental issue for them. And they're coming up with lots of different solutions. There will always be some Muslims that will reject innovative theology, who will go back to more conservative views. So and no one view is going to sweep the floor, but uh, the issue will continue to be a pressing one for Muslims living in the West. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm Daniel Pipes, president of the Forum. Thank you for that uh, very careful discussion of a um, delicate issue uh, and a very well-informed one as well. Fascinating. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you a couple of questions. First, uh, what, uh, first, could you comment on the ideas of Tariq Ramadan, that there's a third category. It's not just Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb, the classical house of Islam, house of war, but there's also a Dar al-Solha, a um, house of, um, of um, quite sure how to translate it, of um, truce, truce, yeah, uh, which is neither this nor that, but um, offers basically the benefits of living here without tension. And secondly, uh, could you draw, you mentioned that there are public policy implications, could you draw some public policy implications? What do you think this means in its unsettled state what does this mean for um, pol for politics? What what should we be advocating? 
It's one of the solutions to the twofold division is to multiply categories. So it gives a permission for Muslims to be in an in-between zone um, of a state that's not hostile to them, where they can be free and they don't have to go to war. So that's one, one pragmatic solution. I don't think that addresses the fundamental drivers of that distinction. So the hadiths and the verses in the Quran that say that you should live under Islamic rule still uh, are in existence. So you'd need to do quite a lot of deeper theological work to justify those particular categories. It's not enough just to create a new category. You have to think through what the implications of that. There's also another issue is that if... Um, uh, nations in the West begin to say no to the Sharia demands. Um, so if, if uh, governments become firmer in saying, we'll let you have this much Sharia, but not that much, and we're going to draw a line in the sand, uh, there, you run the risk of triggering the Muslims into the situation where they feel persecuted, and uh, that will create other problems for them as well. So in a sense, um, one of the challenges of Tariq Ramadan's um, uh, proposal is it's an invitation to the West to, and the same with Alawani saying American Islamic State, to give the Muslims what they need in order to practice their Sharia freely, and then we'll all be at peace. Um, but that's not necessarily the, the best the best answer. I think um, for governments in the West, you really need to um, be confident about programs that encourage um, citizens to be proud of your country. It sounds pretty kind of mundane, but there were some horrendous anarchist attacks in the late 19th century in the US, and one of the solution, outcomes of that is people in schools began to be trained to sing the national anthem and salute the flag, and, and that's, uh, there were good reasons why that became a widespread American practice. And you need some way of encouraging young Muslims to be proud of the country. I think we need to develop the art of saying no to requests to Sharia, but also at the same time to be welcoming and gracious towards Muslims. Um, Muslims are in a very uh, kind of fraught predicament, really, if they're caught between uh, the classical views and, and, and modern conditions. Um, I think you need to understand these dynamics very, very thoroughly. I don't think there's simple answers, but but we we need to develop the art of saying no graciously. And, and uh, I think to, one issue for us is um, freedom of religion is almost like an unchallengeable um, value in, in our thinking. So if, if someone says it's my religious freedom, we have to say yes to them. Um, but actually we're going to have to say no to Sharia law in lots of different areas. Not all religious rights have, can be permitted to be practiced. I mean, you're not going to allow fathers to circumcise their daughters if their religion tells them to do it. So we need to develop a bit of fortitude about saying no over certain religious practices and rights. And I don't think we've got anywhere near that place. And, and I think longer term, gradually to accustom people to say, we're never going to budge on that, you know. We're not going to allow polygamy as an official practice, for example, or whatever it is. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, but uh, it's just not going to happen in this country. The sooner you say that clearly, the, the, the more people will accustom themselves. But keeping the Muslim community in a kind of dangling situation where they have hope that if they press hard enough, they'll get the whole shebang and be able to create a Sharia-compliant enclave in the new country, that's really cruel. Um, because they can only succeed in the end by causing huge conflict with the other citizens in the country. It's not fair to them to do that. So there's some thoughts. You, met, you mentioned Sharia compliant enclave, which is a different approach entirely. What, what, could you talk more about that? I mean, uh, what we've seen in a number of countries, including right here on South Broad Street, is the potential development of an enclave where only Muslims live, where the Sharia is practiced, 
Yes, there was a case a year or two back where a British government minister went into a mainly Islamic area and he was told, why have you come onto our territory? Um, Said Qutub, as part of his strategy for establishing Islam, uh, said that Muslims should establish a, a, a territorial regions where Islam was dominant. It's a, it derives from the narrative of Muhammad's life. Go to Medina and establish Islam there. So there's some ideological pressure amongst radical Muslims to establish areas so you, you have an Islamic local council and try and have as much Sharia compliance in the local region as, as, as you can. And that's really not very helpful. It's not a helpful solution to this problem. And um, some parts of the world have suffered. The, the UK has huge issues with some areas that are sort of no-go zones. Uh, for uh, Yamul, you can't wear a yarmulke in some parts of Melbourne. You know, it's a, that's not a good solution, uh, and uh, that's something to be to be wary of. The French government has published a list a few years ago of what it called uh, a 751 zone urbaine sensible, uh, delicate urban areas, where the normal functions of state don't apply. Yeah, not the right way to go. Well, let's open it up and. Uh, Reverend, we have we have been uh, apprised that uh, militants, militant Muslims, practicing Islam, uh, are charged with the responsibility of, uh, in essence, dominating the world, and that their part of their mission is to uh, basically take the role of a conquest uh, over the Western uh, countries. We have seen in this country. A, an apologist approach by American Muslims who say that that's not a demand of Islam. Can you comment on that, please? The Quran says uh, um, that Islam will dominate over other faiths. Muhammad said he's been sent with a mission to dominate other faiths. So it's it's that that view is well supportable from classical Islamic sources. It has a lot of oomph behind it. And um, I think you'd probably find all those muftis in major nations, most of them would have that view if you asked this question of them straight. Islam rules, it's never ruled. Um, but of course most Muslims, or many Muslims in the West, don't live thinking that way. Um, some would, so they have that hope in the longer term. You'll see little pictures of the White House with the black flag of Islam flying on it and with protesters would carry around. Uh, so it's, it's a strong narrative that Islam should dominate, but... Um, the challenge for Muslims living in the West is to rethink their theology. Snuka Gronje, who was writing 100 years ago uh, in about the, the, the Islamic situation in, in Holland, his hope was that Muslims would move those sorts of expectations to the, to the last things. You know, they'd, they'd be looking forward to something at the end of time where they'd rule the world, but not now. <laughs> um, he, he, that was his solution. Uh, I think it's a, it is actually a core hope of, of mainstream Islamic thought that Islam should dominate. Um, but you, what you're finding is that Muslims in the West are finding other ways through. They're thinking, um, there's uh, emphasizing other aspects than political dominance. So uh, one of the interesting questions will be what will happen in the Middle East as more Islamic regimes come in online. Uh, for example, you have to think that the the, the Islamic Fiqh Academy is made up of muftis and others, leading authorities from different countries, who were appointed by people from the more moderate end. Um, so the, uh, the, you know, the president of Egypt appoints a scholar to be the grand mufti of the nation. He's not going to appoint a Salafi. But as each of those countries become more Islamicized and the governments become more radical, 
then they will appoint leaders who are more radical and they will be meeting together in, in, in the Thick Academy and they will be more radical. So you're going to see a kind of a, a more conservative bent in, in the top levels of the Islamic legal community and that's so the, the problem's not going to go away. You talked about the word religious innovation, uh, and I remember that Henry VIII had a fight between Bloody Mary, the Catholics, and the Protestants. How, how would legitimately there be religious innovation in Islam, and how does that relate to religious innovation in Judeo-Christian tradition? That's the second one. It's a very big question. Uh, <coughs> There's a couple of different views in Islam. One is that you can't innovate, that um, the best thing is to go back to the practice of Muhammad and uh, the early Muslims, uh, restore what was lost. So that's the idea, medieval, medieval idea of reform is to go back to the source. Another view is that Islam is flexible and pragmatic and adaptable, and so you can develop new perspectives as times change. And clearly for millions of Muslims to live under non-Muslim rule requires a different theology. So there's a sort of pragmatic uh, uh, reason why you'd want to rethink things. Um, but as long as you go back to the source, I think it's, that's qu it's quite hard to re rethink your theology. If, if, if your touchstone of orthodoxy is what would Muhammad say and do, then it's, it's actually quite hard to move forward. Um, but Muslims are divided on those issues today. Would you say overall that it's more difficult in the abstract for Muslims to make changes for modern life than it is for other monotheists? I believe it is. It's much harder. And it has to do with some key theological settings that Muhammad put in place. Now, for example, the, the requirement that Islam and politics not be distinguished. That's really hardwired into Muhammad's life. It's very difficult to undo that. Much easier to build a distinction between um, secular and ecclesiastical domains based on the New Testament or on the Old Testament um, than it is to do it based on the life of Muhammad. It's just a, it's a deeply... The, the other problem is the example of Muhammad himself, his wars, uh, his response to um, uh, opposition. It's, uh, the, the, I sometimes think of it as um, a bit like playing a game of cards. You can imagine there's two Muslims playing cards and one's a more moderate and one's a more radical but the problem is that the radical has got all the aces and the kings. Uh, the, the, the words of Muhammad are, are really quite compelling on a lot of the key issues. So um, I, I'm speaking as a theologian, uh, as someone who thinks theologically and believes in the power of faith to motivate people. I understand what it means to live for the next world and not this world. That's part of my own wiring. And I think the, the foundations of Islam make it quite hard. There is lots of evidence that Muslims can adapt themselves but usually they adapt themselves to the modern world by becoming a bit less religious. There is no global movement that I'm aware of uh, that's a kind of progressive theological movement in Islam that has a, a significant, powerful presence. That all the key kind of global networks and organisations like the Islamic Fiqh Academy and others, the Muslim Brotherhood is one, uh, have a more conservative going back to the source um, orientation. So um, I'm... I'm um, bit pessimistic about the prospects of reforming Islam. I think you can reform Muslims, as Muslims can become less religious and adapt beliefs that perhaps sometimes are more in conflict with the things that Muhammad did and said. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the emphasis has been going the other way. We're, we're, we're kind of getting towards the peak of a century-long revival 
of, of conservative Islamic thought. And while there have been um, lots of reformers of a quarter more moderate variety, they just haven't managed to, to get lots and lots of disciples, and they haven't had the guns behind them or the money uh, to, to maintain momentum. Just to argue with you for a second, if we were a century ago in 1912, the guns and the ideas were with the modernizers. If it changed then, why can't it change again? The guns and the ideas were with the colonial powers, and um, the modernizers were in step with them. Uh, At that time, Snooker Grania thought, uh, the great Dutch uh, Arabist, he thought it was absolutely inevitable that Muslims would have to accustom themselves to the modern world. Um, But the the inspiring preachers of the of the radical revival like Maududi and Said Qutb have been more effective in winning young people to their cause. And uh, the reformist thinkers have, um, like, have, have been hanged and driven out and silenced. And uh, so um, it's possible that there could be a backlash. Uh, Iran, Iranians today dislike Islam more than they did 30 years ago, in general. And that's why tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands perhaps are becoming Christians in Iran there's a, there's a dislike of the revolution uh, so there's a possibility of a kind of swing back if people, people will vote for, for Sharia, it's a religious duty to do so, to actually experience full conservative Islam could be very painful and disturbing so you can uh, see a kind of a, a swing back So I'm, I, I think the Islamic revivalist movement the Islamic movement, as it's often called, has not lost momentum yet, but it may well come in the next decades that it begins to peter out and lose credibility. You're both experts. The question I have is, both of you know what systemic, systemic uh, Islamic government and doctrine teach, so how is it possible to have a, uh, a not to have a clash of civilizations with Islamic culture, today of Christian culture, which seem to be the antithesis of each other. Talk about that. Yeah, I think the, the, the theological visions are very different. And they're cultural. Uh, well, they shape the cultures. You know, for example, the distinction between church and state, I think, derives out of a, of a theological perspective it's, and its, at its root. Um, I think there is a huge challenge of, of a tension between cultures. I, mean, I think at the same time, you, I'm talking about really deep theological drivers that shape societies over centuries and decades, and it's a generational project really forming people in a theological vision. In practice, people are mo- much more pragmatic. They accustom themselves to circumstances. They want their children to grow up. They want to live in peace. And um, so people will often compromise with their theologies, uh, and that gives you more hope, you know, that they'll, they'll just get sick of all the nonsense and uh, be willing to, to make choices that bring more peace in the world. I mean, that seem, might seem fairly simplistic, but uh, in many cases that's the case. I mean, I think people will get sick of the Turkish regime when the Turkish economy collapses. Um, they will not be so enthusiastic about an Islamist government there. So uh, th- there's, there's, other, there's other considerations other than theology that shape people's behaviour. And by the way, according to an article in Middle East Quarterly currently, the collapse in Turkey is imminent. <laughs> um, I would say, just briefly, that um, no, there's not a clash of civilizations. There's a clash between civilization and barbarism, 
And barbarism has different uh, manifestations. One is fascist, one is communist, one is Islamist. We defeated two, now we have to fight the third. But there are Muslims on our side in that fight. Two-part question. First part, is there any group within Islam similar to the Druze, where they they practice their religion but are loyal to the state? Um, I guess the Druze are an offshoot of Islam. And, and the second question is, if you are a religious Muslim, on the model of Nidal Hassan, should I trust you in my military? I think the Ahmadis are a, a heterodox group who are much better citizens in general. They've sort of they they've reversed abrogation. They prefer the earlier verses in the Quran, the more peaceful ones. I think military should be very cautious about putting uh, Muslims in key uh, positions in the, in the armed forces. It's difficult because our whole society is set up on the basis of non-discrimination. Um, but history is full of examples of, of Muslims that have not been reliable allies when it comes to jihad. In his case, he explained very clearly that this would happen if he was posted to that place. And so that was just sheer folly uh, to put him in that situation. But, um, no, he should be careful. I mean, I don't think it would be wise, for example, uh, to have only Muslims doing all your sensitive translation for you of Arabic sources in the Middle East. Uh, there's loyalty issues. And, but we are so... I mean, th th it's very hard for the U.S. to deal with this. I mean, there's such a sense of guilt about what was done with the Japanese in the Second World War. Kids are taught in school about these things. And many minorities have known what it is to be discriminated and uh, against and to be stigmatised. So we're very fearful of losing our identity by making such hard decisions. But I think it's quite rational uh, to look at the evidence. I mean, look at all the cases where um, American um, members of the American military have run amok and, and killed other fellow Americans. And I think you'll find just about every case there's been a religious motivation. It's, it's a rational consideration to pay attention to. Indeed, I keep a blog uh, called something like Islamist Penetration in Western Security Forces, which gives example after example in the military, in the police, in uh, environmental agencies, in, in uh, airport uh, security, and in uh, customs, and on and on and on. But time and again, there's a Muslim individual who, for reasons of jihad, uh, does, in fact, betray his, um, the trust in him. It is, it is a, an abiding problem, Bill. There's no distinction between the I think the question is, isn't it very difficult in the modern world when you are a minority and weak to insist on religion and politics being united in that way? It seems kind of irrational and dangerous, really. Self exposes yourself to attack. Well, this is the great crisis of the Muslim mind. You know, Bernard Lewis's book, What Went Wrong? Why are we in a weak position when Allah has promised us to be dominant in the world? And that, the answer to that crisis is uh, how people answer that crisis determines what kind of Muslim they become. Um, 
Some of them say, if only we went back to Muhammad and did what he said we should do, then Allah will reward us. If you have a worldview which is ultimately it's, it's God that provides all power and provides the victory, then you're willing to do what might seem to be ridiculous or irrational to others in order to achieve victory. However, if you're more pragmatic, um, then you'll trust less on Allah and more on uh, you know, um, doing what's going to be safer. And uh, Muslims are caught between those different, those different values. But you will see more that, that the hope of, the Islamic, of Islamic power rising is, is going to be a major theme in the Middle East amongst uh, the governments that are now appearing in the, uh, the Islamist winter that's come, coming across the Middle East. Under the freedom of religion here in this country, could a huge Muslim population, like, like exists in Dearborn, Michigan, set up a Sharia court? Sharia courts already exist in the U.S., informal ones, as they do all up and down Britain. And um, they, use, they generally get used for very specific issues, like... Um, uh, getting um, community approval for your divorce. Um, so th- th- they exist. The question is what's happening in them. Is it, is it good for women who are going through those processes? And how intrusive are they in the daily lives of, of Muslims? Um, I think that's an uh, unclear area yet. We don't really know how well they progress. Do they settle something like a woman or a man deciding to convert to, to Christianity? Uh, every court would rule against that. I mean, it's, it's illegal to, to leave Islam. They're mainly dealing with women who want to divorce their husbands, but in Islamic law, you can't do that without a court. And so um, the man can divorce by his own act of saying, I divorced you three times. But the women have to get the approval of a court for a divorce. So that's often a very long, drawn-out and difficult situation for women. It's not only Muslims that have issues like this for religious reasons. Um, so they generally don't deal with inheritance issues in the UK because that's dealt with under British law. So there's a limit to how far they intrude, but they're very significant for women who, even though they're divorced according to law of the state, the, their Muslim community doesn't recognise them as, as free to remarry. So it's mainly in that area that those courts are active at present. But it is a growing and significant influence in the lives of, of, uh, of Muslims in the West, and I think encouraging those courts is, uh, is complicated, brings complicated problems for human rights. There are toward a hundred Sharia, informal Sharia courts in Britain, but I don't know that there are any in the United States. I, you're shaking your head. Anybody know specifically of Sharia courts in the United States? I, there are, yeah, I read that there are in, um, in Michigan, there are Sharia courts, and of course there's conflict, uh, you know, a Sharia court can't, um, can't rule on something which is illegal right. uh, on the U.S. law. Well, they can. They do sometimes. Well, they, they but can, I, I might be corrected, but I actually don't. I personally don't know of any, although they're, yeah. they are substantial in Britain. If they do exist here, they're really quite minor yeah, and much less, mm, not really a phenomenon. Um, and they do exist in Italy. There was one case where not only were they dealing with civil issues, but with criminal uh, they chop the hand off of a criminal in, in Italy. So, uh, you know, there's, there, are no, there are no limits to where this might go. Uh, if I might just, just make one small point. A Muslim man may convert a woman by saying, I divorce you once. Not to, doesn't have to say three times. If he says it three times, it means that she has to go and marry someone else. It's irrevocable, yes. 
and then come back to and marry and have and consummate the marriage with someone else, and then only can she come back to him, but only one time. So if he does it three times, it's saying, yeah, I'm serious about this. I'm not taking taking you back you know, quickly. David. I very much admire you. I think there's two different views that are competing. One is there's only one nationality, the Ummah, the Muslim identity, and that should be realised with the Caliphate or some united Islam. That's a theological, pure theological answer. The other is more pragmatic. I'm the mufti of whatever country, but the president appointed me, and I'm not going to come out with fatwas and rulings that undermine the state because I'll lose my job. Um, so there is uh, there's some you know there's, there's some <laughs> sort of so you'll find that those muftis will develop reasons why it's legitimate to be a good Egyptian citizen. Yeah, it's, uh, Islam is very pragmatic and flexible. So you, you've got these both of these themes, and you know one could rise up more in in, the, in, in one situation, and some would have this hope of, of uniting the Muslim world, and others will compromise. So it's really very complicated. It's not simple. I, I wanted to make one comment about the Sharia courts. Um, most Muslim countries restrict the application of Sharia law. So in Pakistan, it's illegal uh, to mar- for an imam to marry someone unless they register the marriage with the state. They control the activity of religious leaders. In Egypt, uh, um, they introduced laws to increase the rights of women better than Sharia law in Egypt. So Muslim women are better off than Sharia would allow them to be in Egypt. One of the problems for minorities, if the state doesn't get involved in Sharia, is that a Muslim woman in London could be worse off in a Sharia court in London than she would be in Pakistan or Egypt, because pure Sharia might be applied of some kind or other, without the intervention of the state, which often acts to moderate Islamic law. Um, in Egypt, uh, women have more custody of children than Sharia law allows. It's one of the reasons why the Muslim Brotherhood's unhappy with the government, because they want it more strict. So I'm just saying, ironically, Muslims could suffer more from Sharia in some areas in America because of religious freedom than they would in in Muslim countries where everyone knows that the three times divorce law has to be restricted, so men can't say it in one angry mood. They have to do it over several days and so on. So the state intervenes. Now, how can we... Should we intervene in in the minutia of how Sharia law is applied and restrict its application? Um, one area we could do is make it illegal for marriage celebrants, registered marriage celebrants, to conduct religious ceremonies that are not registered with the state. That would be a really good thing to do in America and Australia. So you can't have polygamous marriages being um, uh, set up by religious leaders who are also licensed to do state, you know, state-sanctioned marriages. That would be an example of, of a good thing that would restrict the kind of uh, growth of Sharia. Could you spell that out? How, how would that make a difference? Because polygamy is illegal in this country, so how would it change anything? Many Muslims you'll find are, are polygamously married, but only one of them would be registered with the state. But what the state should do is what, uh, what they do in Pakistan and make it illegal for the imam to marry someone without registering it with the state. So you've got someone the state has registered to do, to do marriages, 
they do some and register them and they do others and don't register them. And so the, the community develops with the practice of polygamy monitored by the mosque, but only some are registered with the state. It's, it creates a, a lot of problems legally and socially. And the British are moving towards actually recognising these for social security purposes. It would be better to make it illegal. You, you say if you, if you marry people without registering the marriage with the state, you, you can't have your tax deductibility, you're, you're no longer a, a, a celebrant, you, you, you actually intervene. And you could do it in a way that doesn't focus on Islam particularly. I mean, I'm an Anglican minister. I shouldn't be conducting weddings for people without registering them in the church, you know. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's quite, it's not a, it, it doesn't have to have Islam written all over it. Um, the Sharia laws, um, aren't they similar to the Judaic um, rabbinical courts? I mean, in, uh, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you can't just go to the States and say, I want a divorce. You have to have a Jewish divorce. So, so the point is that there are other accommodations between state and religious jurisdiction, and maybe this is something that could be used as a precedent for observing some of the Sharia laws and yet not negating the political laws. I think the question is, um, isn't Sharia law similar to, say, Jewish law? There already uh, sometimes people need to have their issues dealt with in a religious Jewish court. Uh, why wouldn't Muslims need to do the same? I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in Jewish uh, law. My impression is that Islam's much tougher, much harder. Uh, human rights of, of women in the Sharia court are, are really trampled on in a, in a terrible way. Um, and the need to intervene in Sharia practice is greater. Uh, for, let me give you one example. Um, in, in Shafi'i Islam, uh, circumcision of girls is obligatory as part of Islamic practice. And I think the state would want to make that illegal. In other uh, schools of Sunni Islam, it's recommended uh, or, or permissible. So you, you, there are some aspects of Sharia that need to be monitored. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard accounts of, um, of the courts, uh, uh, Sharia courts in the UK, and it's heart-rending, really. I, maybe the Jewish courts are heart-rending, I don't know, but it's really disturbing what's going on in those courts. So... Um, I think there's, uh, you need to pay more attention, really. The assumption that, oh, they're just like us, or that you know, Sharia law, with the place of women in Islam is quite similar to the place of women in Judaism, I think that's a very, that's a mistaken assumption. I mean, uh, there is another aspect beyond the, the human rights element that, uh, that I noticed, and this is another aspect that we noticed, that Judaism... Uh, Christianity to accept the supremacy of the state. So if you have a Lalachic court, a Jewish court, they don't have any intention. They accept, for example, in the first place, the, uh, the state authority of the rights there. Then they don't have the intention of imposing <coughs> it on the majority society in which they live. So the Jews of it's Brooklyn, true. or I don't know, Measharim, don't want, Measharim may be different, but Brooklyn don't want to impose it on American society, while Sharia law is the first step to imposition of the system on American society. So sure. they said at the beginning, let us practice our own law in our enclaves, but what they are basically aiming at is converting American society, and here is the danger. That's true. That's true. We're almost out of time. We really are out of time, but one more, David. How do uh, American Muslim leaders reconcile you know, the teachings of integrating 
church and state with the principles of being an American in the Constitution and separating those things. They make hay while the sun shines. The system here gives them freedom, so they use that freedom to the maximum. And they accustom themselves to the freedom. If they were in power, uh, their theology would probably shift back to a more conservative view, and they would not they would not perpetuate those freedoms themselves. So it's very pragmatic response at present. They don't have the power to determine uh, whether church and state are separate in the U.S. But if they if they did have that power, they would they would undo that. You would find laws against proselytizing. You'd have restrictions uh, on it. already. There's pressure. <laughs> Uh, at present, so you'd, live, you'd find that those freedoms would be undone. I mean, as um, I think as Daniel Pipes once said, um, the Christians could have made America a religious state. You know, they could have made America into a state where religion and politics were inseparable, but they chose not to. Um, and uh, Islamic societies find that, that hard to do that. You know, they're not very good at doing it. Um, polit- politic- lots of Islamic religious parties everywhere, so so that's the, that's the current situation. They're living between two worlds and taking advantage of the system as it exists here. But if they're not vocal about their needing to be a reformation, aren't they implicitly supporting uh, something that's an- antithetical to uh, life in America? Well, it's very difficult to speak against really clearly established principles that are in the Quran and the teaching of Muhammad. You dance your way around them. You try and find compromises, but it's very hard to say, to contradict the core texts. And that's one of the difficulties about, about this discussion. Many uh, well-informed Muslims would know that there are these prohibitions on Muslims living in the lands of infidelity. So you have to find a way around it. Um, but you can't just overthrow the core principles. That's, that's very, very difficult. You compromise. And I, I wish that the US uh, would do more to support moderate Muslims, really. And... Uh, I was at a, um, a briefing, a conference in, in Washington just recently to launch um, Silence, a book um, by Nina Shea and Paul Marshall. And there were some more moderate Muslims there, and they, they pointed out that the Obama administration has been consistently privileging more radical Muslims and cutting off more moderates from, from political access. And that's really, that's not creating a climate where the process that you're speaking about can easily happen. In fact, it's having the other effect, the the, 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 the reformers in that sense are really demoralised by the government's policy. So that there, there could be opportunity for a very welcome shift in a more intelligent policy of managing Islam. This problem will not go away. It's going to be here for centuries. We need a long-term vision for, for managing it. Thank you. I want to thank uh, Reverend Mark Dury for a... Thank you for showing the book. The book is available outside. The third choice. I'd like to thank Reverend Dury for really quite brilliant analysis. Very, very careful, very knowledgeable. I think it makes it's suitable for us to be in a law firm where uh, these <laughs> ultimately very um, legal issues come up. I mean, you have the Constitution on the one hand, you've got the Quran on the other, and uh, they're not the same. <laughs> <laughs> Big differences between them.